Good morning, church. Good morning. I said good morning, church. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. Ah, the new year has come and gone, hasn't it? I don't know about you. I feel like every new year, like the actual new year itself, like the countdown to new year, I always feel like it's a little bit anticlimactic for me, right? Like watching the ball drop on TV, the countdown, like the, I mean, remember Y2K? It just felt like there was so much hype. It's not like I wanted any sort of like big thing to happen, but it just felt like it fizzled. Uh, I just not, it's just not for Robin and I. I mean, we can't, we can't even stay up till midnight, right? Like, but even if we could, I don't think that we would necessarily. It's just not for us. So it, but it doesn't really matter. Either way, whether New Year was something that was exciting and full of noise for you or whether it fizzled, uh, the truth is that we are in a new year. We are in a new decade. And with that new year comes excitement. And with that new year, there can be fear. There can be joy. There can be sorrow. The year is going to be probably full of decision-making and indecision as well. This next year is probably going to see, for many of us, some very smooth sailing. And for some of us, no doubt there's going to be some choppy water, right? But in the midst of all this, at the heart of the 366 days, I looked it up, uh, 366 days this year at the heart of every single day. What is it that we need? I mean really, really need. Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at a few words along with the series on Christmas. We've been looking at three words. It's know, grow, and show. And these three words, uh, they represent overarching values of our church, about who we are, what we're all about. And I was thinking the last couple of weeks, what if we took no grow and show and we boiled it down even further? What if we took those three words and we boiled it down just to one thing? One thing that this church is about, one thing that identifies who we are, the one thing that we absolutely need more than anything else. And one word, it's Jesus. It's Jesus, right? It's Jesus. Before we dig into it, uh, before we come to our passage, let me pray. Uh, Father, we just are so thankful to be here. But more than that, we are thankful that you're here. We long to hear from you. We We long to be touched in our heart by you, by what you have to say. And we ask that you soften our hearts this morning that you take our minds and that you make it so that we can respond to the words that you have to say, that we go out of here changed people, different people, pondering in our thoughts about things that you bring to our minds. And we ask that your spirit deliver this message, not me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So it was two o'clock in the morning, Christmas morning, and Nina cries out. She's right there. Hi, Nina. And she cries out, and Rob and I go in there, and she had thrown up. Uh, We checked. She had a fever. We sorted her out, got her back to bed, and then we went back to bed. And as I lay 
there, I could feel something going on in my stomach too. So for Christmas, Nina and I got the stomach flu. Woohoo! And I felt like in the middle of the night, I've talked to a few of you about this, I felt like in the middle of the night, the Grinch came in and stole everything to do with Christmas, all the preparation, all the anticipation, all the excitement over Christmas. The decorations, I couldn't enjoy. The presents, I tried to open up one. I couldn't do it. I had to go back upstairs and lay down. I mean, there's an advent, there's a countdown to Christmas. The days are getting marked off. The days are getting closer and closer. There's anticipation and expectation for Christmas. And I'm just laying there in bed. I got a fever. I got body aches. I got a headache. My stomach feels terrible. My feet stink. Like, you name it, I had it, right? Like, it's, it, it's bad. And the only thing I'm left with has nothing to do with Christmas, I felt like. I was just laying there with my thoughts. My thoughts kept going to the question, Lord, how do I experience the joy of Christmas like this? Despite my circumstances, despite what I was going through, despite the fact that I felt like Christmas was completely stolen away and there was one thought, there was one answer that kept coming back to me again and again and again. You take everything away. You strip Christmas down completely, but you leave me with Jesus, and he is enough. He is more than enough. And this is the same conclusion that the Apostle Paul comes to, revealed to him by God. Our passage this morning is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. In verses 1 through 2, it says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So 1 Corinthians is a letter written by Paul to the church in the city of Corinth. Okay, in the beginning of the letter, he's dealing with an issue there at church. It's been reported to him that there's division among some of the believers. Some of the believers are gravitating toward leaders, and some believers are saying, well, I follow Paul. And other, believer, other believers say, well, I follow Apollos. Other believers still are saying, well, I, I follow Peter. Paul asks a really good question in chapter 1. He says, wait, wait, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And so he begins in chapter 1 to contrast the wisdom of men and the wisdom of God. He says, even the weakness of God, even if that was such a thing, even if God had any weakness at all in him, his weakness would be stronger than anything that man has. He says, even the foolishness of God, if that was even such a thing, if there was any foolishness in God, it would be wiser than anything that you got. So he says, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or human wisdom, not that he couldn't have done that, right? I mean, no doubt, very skilled with words, educated in philosophy. He could have come with a whole arsenal of persuasive words, but he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Again, not that Paul didn't know anything else. Very knowledgeable, highly educated. Paul, though, decided that he was determined that Jesus would be at the center of everything that he did. 
that everything that Jesus did, his work on the cross, the person of Jesus would permeate into the life of Christ. And everything that he taught, the way he lived his life, the things that he did, the way he developed his relationships, the time that he spent, that Jesus would be at the center of that, determined to keep Jesus at the center of his life there in Corinth. We find in Acts 18, so Paul, as his first visit to the city in Corinth, and he comes down from the city of Athens, and he gets into Corinth, and he meets a married couple named Priscilla and Aquila. It says in 18, verses 3 and 4, and he, that's Paul, went to see them, that's Aquila and Priscilla, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. So he lived with them, and in living with them, Jesus was at the center of that, and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade, so he works He makes tents, and Jesus is at the center of that. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and Jesus was at the heart, at the center of that. And he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks, and Jesus was at the center of that. He spent a year and a half in Corinth, living with them, working with them, developing relationships with them, teaching them, and Jesus was at the heart of all of that. And while he was there, then he says in verses 3 and through 5 of our passage, and I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So he came in weakness. No plausible words of wisdom, no wisdom of men, no philosophies of men, no selling techniques or lofty speech. Why? Because Jesus is enough. He is more than enough. The person of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the work of Jesus on the cross. I mean, what is the answer to everything about this world? What is, the, what is the answer to questions about salvation? It's Jesus. What is the answer to questions about where do we find strength in our lives? What is the answer to questions about contentment? What is the answer to what this church needs? Can I hear it from the church? It's Jesus. What is the answer to what our families need? What is the answer to what our, what our neighborhoods and our, our, our communities need? It's Jesus. What is the answer to things of anxiety and stress and reoccurring sin? It's Jesus. And it's not that we're not required to do something, right? It's, we're supposed to put our hands to things. We're supposed to obey our Lord. But apart from Jesus, if we're not connected with him, if we're not in a loving relationship with him, relying on him to sustain us, to fill us, then we can do nothing. This is what Jesus told us. That's in John 15, 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Why is that? I mean, why is Jesus the answer? Why is it that he is at the center of everything? Well, for starters, he is the source of life, the creator. He sustains all things. He is the source of salvation, the savior. The Bible describes him as the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. 
He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the faithful and true. He is the Amen. There is nothing on this planet that doesn't have something to do with Jesus because He is our strength. He is the reason that we are here. He is the reason that we have breath, the reason we can see colors, the reason that we can taste food. He is our wisdom. He is our grace. He is our mercy. He is our salvation. He is our forgiveness, and He is our righteousness. He is all. He is everything. And there are things on this planet that want to draw us away from Him. Isn't there? There are things on this planet that want to draw our love away from Him. There are things in this life and on this planet in this year 2020 that want to draw us away from His rightful place in our lives as King and as God. There are things in this year that want to draw us away from Him being our foundation, from Him being our focus. So two things this year that I just want to highlight to us, two things that will try and to draw us away from Jesus. The first one is this, there are illusions. So, so there are an appearance of things. And then there's the actual things, right? For example, earth is not the center of the universe, right? But it kind of appears that way, right? I don't fault anyone in the, in, the, in the dark ages for thinking this. If you look up in the sky, it appears that the sun revolves around the earth. The moon certainly does, but it even appears that the stars revolve around the earth. If everything revolves around the earth, therefore the earth must be at the center of all things that revolve around it. It makes sense. It's logical. There even seems to be evidence to support that hypothesis but is it true? Let me ask you this. What is the appearance of the cross? Jesus was beaten. He made to drag his cross up the hill that he was nailed to that cross to hang there until he was dead. And on that cross, he bled, he suffered, he was ridiculed and mocked, and then he died. It appeared weak, didn't it? It appeared powerless. It appeared like failure. The demons rejoiced. The Son of God was delivered over to wicked men. He was tortured, and then he died. His disciples ran off. Jesus denied ever even knowing him. Mary wept. There is an appearance of things, and then there is the actual thing. He suffered on that cross, yes, and on that cross he took upon the sins of the entire world. Was his life taken from him? No. It says that he gave his life, and then after three days, he takes his life back up again. He came back from the dead. Later in the same letter, Paul says in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, death is swallowed up in victory. Right? Jesus comes back from the dead. So then, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, what appeared to be weak turned out to be the strength of God. What appeared to be weak turned out to be the power of God. What appeared to be failure turned out to be Jesus taking victory over sin and death. There is an appearance of things. 
And leading up to our passage, Paul says in verse 18 of chapter 1, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That word folly is a Greek word that we get our word moron from. The cross, resurrection, forgiveness, sin, that whole thing. It's moronic, it's foolishness, it's utter nonsense to those who are perishing. But for those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Believers do not be tempted that there is any weakness, that there is any foolishness at all in the cross. It was the power of God 2,000 years ago when Jesus went to it. It is the power of God today for all of those of us who are being saved, for all of us who continually, day after day, are being grace poured out upon us. It is the power of God. Don't be tempted to believe that there is any weakness at all in the cross, and what Jesus did is the power of God. And Paul is saying, I don't want to get in the way of that. I don't want to add anything of me. I don't want to bring any sort of human wisdom or persuasion. All eyes should be on Jesus. He should be the focus and the object of our attention. And there are illusions on this planet that draw us away from that. And one of the biggest draws for me, that draws me away from Jesus, is me. Right? One of the strongest illusions in my life that I'm tempted with is that my life is all about me. And there's evidence to even support that. Relationships revolve around me, right? My schedule, my agenda revolve around my needs, my time, my objectives. My efforts revolve around me and my self-improvement. Making money and spending money, it's all about me and what I want, what I need, what I deserve. We even label our circumstances as good or bad because of how they make me feel. The free time that we have, the time that we spend with others, even the time that we spend with God can become about me. What I want, the change I feel that I need. I mean, we want a good life, don't we? We want a happy life, and so we're tempted to take matters in our own hands, to manifest these things like goodness and happiness in our own life. We desire peace and joy and contentment, don't we? We desire these things, and so we chase after them, and we read books about them, and we listen to podcasts and TED Talks, and we make plans, and we make plans, especially around January 1st, don't we? Resolutions. These are self-improvement plans. Consistently, year after year, what do you think are the top three resolutions made each year? In the beginning of the year, it's, yeah, that's it, I heard, it is diet, exercise, and lose weight. 90% of us Americans who make some kind of resolution are convinced that this year will be different that we're going to be successful at the resolutions that we have. But after 30 days, at the end of this month, 75% have failed. Statistically, only 8% will succeed this year. That's 92% of us who are left feeling like failures. We beat ourselves up, we feel frustrated, we feel like losers, and we ask ourselves, why did we fail? What can we do different next year? We're like, oh, I know. 
My focus was too broad. I need to be more specific. Oh, it's because I wasn't thinking about all the benefits if I succeed. Or I wasn't thinking about all of the consequences if I fail. Oh, it, wasn't, it was because I wasn't really, I didn't make it a natural part of my routine. That's it. I was lacking willpower. I just need to figure out how to get more self-control like it's all about us. Imagine our life like a house, like a whole life. Our faith, our thoughts, our emotions, our relationships, the things that we think about, it's like a house. And we look around our house and we're like, man, some serious changes need to be made around here, some serious improvements. This place is looking disastrous. The walls are cracked, the windows are broken, the roof is leaking, there's mold, but the doors don't close right, the furniture is outdated, there's, there's wallpaper that's outdated. <laughs> the fact that there's wallpaper probably is a bad sign. There, it's, it's not looking good, and we decide there, there's something needs to be done, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna choose one project. We're going to make these walls better. So all the cracks in the walls, we're going to start repairing those things. So we fix a crack in the wall, and as we fix a crack in the wall, another one appears. The more we fix the cracks, the more cracks just keep forming. We get disappointed. We get frustrated. We feel like failures. Why can't I just make these walls look good? We just keep looking at the structure and we just keep looking at what the house looks like and what it feels like with very little to no thought at all on what our house is built on. What is your foundation? Actually, the better question is, who is your foundation? Because we can be tempted to think, the illusion is that we can be a foundation in our own lives, that we can wear the crown, that we can be the king, or we trust in the things of this world to be the foundation for our lives. But apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. There is only one solid rock that we can depend on, that we can put our trust in, and it will never fail. It will never falter. So when we catch ourselves believing the illusion that my life is all about me, that the world revolves around me, that what I really need to do is be stronger, work harder, put a smile on my face to pull myself up just one more time and carry my heavy load one more day, you need to put that thought in check. You need to interrogate that thought and you need to imprison that thing because let's face it, we are not solid rock, are we? We're easily swayed. We don't know what is best for our lives. The will for our life is flawed. When it comes to being a foundation, we are sand. The world is sand. 1 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? We're sand. That is why Paul says in our passage, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And what is the power of God? It is the cross of Christ. It is the work and the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when our house is built on Him as our foundation, then when we do repairs, it's not crumbling around us. What is the one thing 
What is the one thing that we absolutely need more than anything this year? Listen to what David has to say in Psalm 62. He says, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. Paul then says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He alone is our rock. Everything else that we want to build our life on These things are illusion when it comes to solid rock. When we build our house on him, though, he provides strength and integrity for our structure. And we know, we know this from past experience, that it's only a matter of time before our strength and our integrity gets tested. Am I right? It's only a matter of time before the storm begins to brew on the horizon. Or maybe the storm is already brewing in your life. And the winds are picking up and the waves are crashing down. And this idea of the storm, it brings us to the last thing that we'll take a look at, which tends to be a strong pull for us to draw us away from Jesus, and that is distractions. Okay, there are illusions. These things are not what they appear. And then there's distractions, and these things are exactly as they appear. In Matthew chapter 14, we find the account of the feeding of the 5,000. After everyone eats and everything gets cleaned up, then Jesus sends his disciples in a boat uh, off on the Sea of Galilee to go to the other side. Jesus dismisses the crowd, everyone leaves. He finally finds some alone time with the Lord to pray to the Father. And while he's doing this, there's a storm brewing. And it's late. And Jesus decides, I'm going to go out and I'm going to meet the disciples on the boat. So he walks out to them. (laughs) You know the story. And as he's getting close to them, disciples see him from a distance And they are freaked out, right? They think that he is a spirit or a ghost. And so Jesus says to them, don't be afraid, it's me, it's Jesus. And Peter says, if it's really you, Lord, command me to come out to you. And so Jesus says, okay, Peter, then come out to me. And Peter gets out of the boat and he begins walking to Jesus. You remember the story. In verse 30 of chapter 14, it says, when he saw the wind, this is Peter, He was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Let me ask you this. Is the storm that was raging around Peter, was it real? Yes. Were the waves at his feet, were those waves real? Yes. But were they worth him taking his eyes off of Jesus for? See, distractions from Jesus. Tim Keller was asked why he thinks that people struggle to connect with God, and he wrote, noise and distraction. It's easier to tweet than to pray. And he tweeted that, too. (laughs) (laughs) Distractions, they get our attention, right? They capture our thoughts and our affections. They can scare us. They can tempt us. They can excite us. These distractions can be things like sinful behavior, could be things like brand new shiny objects that we put our passions and our efforts to. Distractions can be in the form of external storms like circumstances, financial issues. It could be sickness. It could be issues at the job. Distractions can be internal storms, okay? Our own thoughts being like internal narratives. And as 
the movie of our life unfolds, this, this narrator begins to make comments on characters, reminding us about scenes from 15 years ago, foreshadowing things of things to come. And that, if that narrative in our mind is not accurate, it can be very distracting. And then our thoughts and our feelings combine to create internal storms of emotions, which are very real but can be very distracting as well. The more we give our focus and attention to these emotions, it feels like the worse that it gets because we not only look at these distractions, but we begin to identify with them. We begin to think and feel that the distractions of life are who we are. And many times throughout the day, our thoughts and emotions will lead us away from the truth, distract us away from who we truly are in Christ, to lead us away from the words and the works and the promises and the person of Jesus. And we can tell ourselves that we're no good. We can tell ourselves that we're ugly. We can tell ourselves that we're unwanted, that we're failures. We can tell ourselves that we're not going to find what we need in Jesus. But these distractions that take us away from Jesus, these things are lies. And the more we entertain these thoughts, the more we believe the internal narrator in our head, these things that can corrupt. There's many things that can corrupt that internal narrative. Things like busyness and stress can affect that narrative. How we interpret the world around us, how do we define our purpose, how we look at our current circumstances and current events Things like our job or school or relationships at home. They can go around the world. Environmental issues. I mean, what about what's going in on, on, on in Iran right now? What about attacks on our schools? What about attacks in our places of worship? What about American politics? Are all of these things real? Yes. Are we led to take responsibility with these things in our life? Yes, but are they worth us taking our eyes off of Jesus? Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. We trust him in our circumstances. We don't trust our circumstances. We trust in his track record. We trust in his character and his principles. And then notice this very next verse in verse 4. It's this really cool correlation between our foundation and keeping our minds on him. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. And knowing this truth Reminding us ourselves of this truth, it sets us free from distractions. Knowing the truth about our Lord, knowing the fact that our Lord is present and that he cares, that he loves us, that he is our everlasting rock, it sets us free. And this year, we desire things for our lives for this year. But first, we need to ask, what are we going to resolve ourselves to right now so that we're not fooled by illusions? We're not persuaded by distractions. What we need more than anything this year is to keep Jesus at the front and center in everything that we do, to keep our eyes on him, to give him our attention, to give him our affection, to speak with him, to have dialogue with him and conversation with him throughout the day, to think about him and what he means for us in our lives, 
the difference that His presence makes for us. What do you need to do now to protect your focus, to decide this year to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified? What is it that you need today in order to keep Him as your foundation, to keep your eyes on Him? Here's just a few ideas and then we'll be done. First and foremost, we need to start with the Savior. Because all the things that we're talking about here, it's about foundation of our lives, of being Jesus, not just the principles of Jesus. Right? Keeping our eyes on Jesus as just a good man or a good teacher doesn't cut it. He was those things. But Jesus described himself as the bread of life. As living water, he described himself as the way, the truth, and the life that no one gets to the Father except through him. The Bible tells us that everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's standards, but because of his grace. We're told that God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight, and he did this through Jesus, who is the Savior of the world. And he freed us. He took upon himself the penalty of sin so that we didn't have to pay it. And people are made right with God. They're made right with God. How? Because of our actions? Because of what we do? No, because of free gift from him. When we believe that he is a sacrifice for our sin, that Jesus sacrificed his life, that he shed his blood. And if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. It starts with him as your Savior. We need to deal with sin and live at peace. Nothing will keep me up at night and stir the internal storms much like unconfessed sin and stressed relationships. James 5.16 tells us to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Romans 12.18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Confess your sins. Turn from your sins. Make every effort for reconciliation in the relationships in your lives. And if at all possible, if it's up to you, be at peace with everyone. That can start right now. One like five minutes when we're done, right? It's something that we can do today. Another thing is we need to set reminders for nourishment. Okay, we need reminders for spiritual nourishment. When it comes time for us to eat food, when our body requires food, there is a natural reminder for us, isn't there? It's hunger. And that feeling is relentless until we actually put food in our belly. Maybe we need to start setting reminders to create nourishing habits that would feed our soul, that would bring our minds back to the Lord one more time, again and again, away from distractions, to show illusions for what they actually are. Some ideas in order to do this, something I started recently, I didn't know it until recently, uh, that Billy Graham did. A guy interviewed him and he told him that he would keep his Bible open wherever he went. So if he would go home, it was open. If he would go to work, the Bible was open on the table. If he was on the road in a hotel, the Bible would be open. And as he walked by the Bible, it would call to him. He would be reminded about it. And he said he would stop. And sometimes he would only read a verse or two, sometimes an hour or two. And he did this because he knew the Word of God was a meal. It nourished his soul. And why would he ever miss a meal? 
This is about abiding in him, about being connected to him as the vine. How could we skip a meal for our soul? In his book, The Common Rule, Justin Early has created rules in his life daily and weekly. Okay? And one of the daily habits that he prescribes is this, scripture before phone. I like this. Use your phone as a reminder in the morning to hear from God before you hear any other voices. Scripture before phone. Take his words with you. I don't know if this happens to you, but this happens to me a lot. I'm reading my Bible in the morning, and I get to a part, and I'm like, man, that's good. That's really good. And then I close it up, and I put it down, and I walk away. I recognize that it's good. I recognize that it's powerful, and then I don't do anything about it. I encourage you to take his words with you. How many times have I been spoken to by God and then I walk away? Bring his words with you. As he highlights things in that open Bible, bring those things with you. Use something in your daily life that you carry with you. For me, right now, it is a blue cord on my finger. There's also a blue cord attached to my key ring right now. And every time that I feel it, every time that I see it, thank you, Faith, by the way, every time that I see this thing and feel this thing, I'm reminded about what God impressed on my heart this morning. And I carry those words with me. And I ponder those words. I think about those words. I use those words in conversation and in prayer. We need to talk with God. Another thing that I've been doing, this is just, it just happened on accident. Uh, it happened months, maybe a year ago. I, I started sending a text message, and I'm like, man, I really hope that the person who's going to read this text message understands my heart. I, I hope this communicates what I want to communicate. Oh, how about instead of hoping for it, I could just pray that God does that in the, in the reader's life, in the reader, in the listener's ear. Right? So I'd, I would pray, God bless this text. And then it just turned into like wh whatever information, whatever conversation, whatever information that I would send, whether it be a text or an email or conversation, I would have this ongoing dialogue with God. May it be pleasing. May it bring you glory. May it, be, may it communicate your heart and your love. Whether it's sending a text or an email, whatever it is, use things in our daily life to bring our minds back to prayer, back to conversation with the Lord because it is our lifeline. We need to slow down and be mindful. This is the last one. Okay, this is about being purposeful, about being intentional, about how you see your life and the life that is around you. Jesus is there with you. He will go with you when you walk out those doors. He is here right now. So I've always had weak eyes all my life, but I didn't always know it. When I was 10 years old, I was in the car with my mom, and my mom's looking for a road, and, and she uh, said, Gary, what's that sign say? And I said, what sign? Uh-oh. I was 10 years old, and I never went to the eye doctor. All right? Went to the eye doctor, found out I can't see things far away, so they gave me prescription lenses to wear. And I thought they looked ridiculous, but when I walked out of the office, I could see the hills in the distance. Like, whoa. I could see the clarity of the clouds. Wow. But there was one thing that I remember 
being the most impressive. It was when I first looked up in a clear night sky and I saw the stars for the first time when I was 10 years old. And it was amazing. The stars had always been there. They just weren't clear. They just weren't in focus. Jesus is there with you in your life. He is working and he is active and he cares for you. He's there with you along still waters. He's there with you in the valley of the shadow of death. He is there with you in the storms of life. He is there and he is active. He is working all things for your good. He is there with you. He is here with us now. Don't miss him. Don't let him be out of focus. The glasses or, or the lenses or whatever we want to use as an analogy to see life around us allow us first and foremost to see Jesus clearly. The way that we see our life and our family and our enemies and our circumstances allow him to be front and center and clear and in focus. What helps us with this, to helps us slow down and be mindful about him, one idea is just the beauty of creation. Just slow down and begin to look at the beauty of the sky, of a sunset, of the stars, of trees. I mean, creation declares the glory of the Lord. We should be listening to this. This should be the idea of stopping and smelling the flowers. Let that smell, let that sight, let the colors, the texture, the things of the beauty of the natural world remind us to bring our minds back to the beauty of the Creator, remind us that He is present with us. Another one, we really need to slow down and be with one another, right? Slow down so that you can spend time with other believers, invite them over for a meal, go out to coffee with them, find a spiritual partner, someone that you can talk about the, about the Lord, about life with, that you could speak into them the words of life and that you could receive from them the words of life. And in doing this, we build each other's faith. In doing this, collectively, we refocus our attention and our focus on Jesus. So these are just some ideas, right? You can pick some, one, two, whatever, or you come up with your own. To me, it doesn't matter either way. My prayer for all of us is that this year in 2020, we know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, to know that he is the answer to a sure foundation of our life, to know that he is what we need for our focus, what we need more than anything this year, what our church needs, what we need, what our communities need more than anything this year is Jesus. And it's so important for us to identify the things in our daily lives that would bring our minds back to him consistently so that he can be our focus and our foundation. Let's pray. Father, we want to learn this. We want to know this. And we want to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We want to be secure on the foundation of Your Son. Jesus, we long to see You clearly. One day we will face to face, but until then, we ask that we just focus on you, on your character, on your goodness, on your love for us. And these things would stir in our hearts and our souls to want to see you even more clearly, to long for you. Help us, we pray. We need your help with this. 
There's so many things that lie to us, that draw us away from you. There's distractions and illusions help us to build our life on you, the foundation that we can trust in, that will never fail us. Help us to see you clearly in everything that we do in our lives. You are here. Help us to see it. Help us not to miss it. Help us to keep our eyes focused on you because you are amazing, that you are worthy of our attention. You are worthy of our focus, and you are worthy of our foundation. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys have a great week. God bless you guys.